I have new partners, Amy and Kevin Busolato, who actually were two of my first employees. They left my firm to go teach at the University of Notre Dame, which, which has one of the only classical programs in America in architecture school. And so they really are educators by, not just by inclination, but also by profession. Right. And it's wonderful to have them back here because that was very much the way I thought about what we do here, you know, not just in terms of the way we create projects, but also can we create an experience for people who work here where they're learning all the time and growing professionally themselves. Welcome to Talk Shop. I'm Ariel Oaken, a New York-based interior designer, writer, and editor looking to bring a little bit of magic into our homes every day. After years as a writer and editor in the interiors world, I founded my own editorial site, Fedemore Lane, in 2020, and the Talk Shop interview series was born. Each week, I delve into the personal experiences of the top interior designers and tastemakers around the globe. This week, I'm joined by one of the nation's most beloved and leading experts on contemporary classical architecture, Gil Schaefer. A member of Architectural Digest AD100, Gil's work is often referred to as the pinnacle of classical American architecture in today's time. With a master's in architecture from Yale, Gil studied under industry legends and founded his own firm, GP Schaefer Architect, in 2002. The firm was recently renamed Schaefer Busolato Architects in 2023. The firm's passion for integrating landscape and interior decoration into the architecture of a project is a significant hallmark of their work. And as Gil says, what makes a great home isn't its size or even its features necessarily, but being a place that you can feel at home in both the big and small moments of life. In addition to his architectural practice, Gil regularly lectures around the country and is the author of two best-selling books with his third book, Home at Last, out now. Please join me as we welcome Gil to the podcast. Gil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so, so much for joining us. My whole office and myself are just absolutely thrilled to have you on. We are always so inspired by everything you do, and I always have your books on my desk. So, <laughs> Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So to kick off the conversation, this is something we've been asking everyone who came on. Can you describe your style in three words or less? Well, I think hopefully timeless, tailored, I guess, understated. And I want to say classic, but that's maybe timeless and classic <laughs> is sort of the same thing. So we'll throw four in. I feel like of anyone to get the four, I think it should be you. <laughs> and for those who may not know, and I doubt that there's anyone listening to a design podcast who is not familiar with your beautiful work. But can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you are at this point in your life right now? Sure. I'm an architect in New York City, and our firm is about 20-some-odd years old at this point. We do residential architecture only and usually fairly, usually very traditional, always based in some kind of historic tradition usually. We work all around the country when we can, and which I think is really fun to work in different places. I'm married and I have two stepchildren who are, well, one's just out of college and one's just starting college. <laughs> and my wife's an interior designer, Courtney Daniels. We live in New York. I don't know. Uh, what <laughs> else can I tell you? <laughs> That's perfect. And can you walk us through a little bit about the beginnings of your career and the great American house in a place to call home, you kind of touch on this, but you talk about architecture sort of running in the family since your grandfather was an architect. And one of my favorite things that you write about is 
memory and how you kind of tap into that when thinking about designing. So can you tell us a little bit about the experience of growing up with the perspective of architecture kind of embedded in your family and then also being exposed to so many different types of architecture as well? from the Midwest to the Northeast, Georgia, the Bahamas, California, and what impact that left on you? Sure. As you mentioned, my grandfather was an architect and his grandfather had been an architect. So architecture was kind of very much in my consciousness and I think, frankly, in my genes. I (laughs) I think it was inevitable. I, I mean, I wanted to be an architect from the youngest age before I even really knew what that was. I was always building things, making, you know, Lego blocks and blocks. And, you know, even when I had a train set, I was much more interested in the buildings around the train tracks than the train <laughs> itself. And my parents divorced when I was young. And my, when my dad remarried, my stepmother was a decorator too. So there was, in my, when my parents were married and my, certainly both of them after they were divorced, they cared very much about decoration and, and houses and things. So as you say, I was, it was very much a part of my upbringing. And I suppose because I was genetically wired to care about it somehow, (laughs) uh, I really paid attention. My brother, ironically, could care less about architecture and design at all. So so funny. The gene goes to certain people, I think. Yeah. You know, because I guess because my parents divorced when I was young and we moved around a little bit. I was born in the Midwest, but we, my dad worked on Wall Street and we lived out on a farm in New Jersey. And so when my parents divorced, my dad moved into the city and we lived with my mom out in the countryside. Then we also had this sojourn in Southern California, south of Santa Barbara and house. My mom had a house in the Bahamas. So we spent some time there too. So I, I moved around a lot and I saw a lot of different kinds of houses and different in different places. And, and I saw how they were different in those different places. Like each place impacted the way the house looked mm-hmm. and the way you lived in it. Again, I think it's because of the way I was wired. I somehow noticed that, whereas I think my brother probably could care less. But <laughs> for me, it was it was something that I really noticed and just made me love houses. You know, ultimately, as I began to make grow as an architect and have my own practice, I began to think a lot about sense of place. And I guess I was just lucky that I, you know, had this upbringing where I was always put in different places and could kind of notice those things. When did you realize that you wanted to become an architect? Well, I think I wanted from a grade school, but I was not real smart in math. Which is hard <laughs> when you're in that field. Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, I was I was smart enough in math that I, I'm doing just fine, but <laughs> I, I wouldn't structure your building for you, for sure. I wouldn't do the calculations to determine whether the beam was strong enough for you. But people had told me that you really can't be an architect unless you're really good at math. And so by the time I got to college, I started to believe that. And I thought, well, gosh, then if I can't be an architect, maybe I'll be an art historian or something. And then a professor of mine recommended this program at Harvard's Graduate School of Design called Career Discovery, which is in the summer. It's a summer program. Mm-hmm. It's like you go to architecture school for a summer. Oh, interesting. It confirmed that, yes, indeed, architecture was possible and probably a good idea for me. So, <laughs> so I got back on that path. Good idea for you. <laughs> but when I went to college, I really studied architectural history. You went, did you go to Haverford? I went to Haverford and Bryn Mawr. Yeah, I'm from there. Oh, you are? Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm from Gladwin and I went to Baldwin, which is across oh my gosh. from Bryn Mawr. Well, it's such a beautiful area to grow up in, my gosh. It really, uh, it really is. I, I miss it very much. And 
much to the chagrin of my husband, I would move back, but he definitely would never. <laughs> oh. <laughs> He's a native New Yorker, but it's beautiful there. It's it's a special place. It's nice to visit. Yeah. But it was it was much more liberal artsy than say a, an architecture major or something, which was good, I think, because it gave me that grounding in history, right? Which I was already interested in, probably because of the way I grew up, right? And then when I went to architecture school, I had that nice background, more liberal artsy kind of background before I focused on something very you know technical and design oriented. That's so interesting because I I was reading after you went to grad school at Yale and you had the opportunity to study under some really major greats in the industry like Thomas Beebe and Robert Venturi and Frank Gehry. Were there any particular experiences or moments that stuck with you through that? Because you ended up, and you talk about this in your book, you studied modernism, but then you ended up veering towards the classic. The interesting thing about going to Yale at that time and that was true, I think, for most architecture schools in the country, that modernism was much more the thing that you learned. You didn't really learn about history or traditionalism at all. Right. And I didn't really know that. I just, when I was growing up and I had my architect grandfather would point out things that were modern <laughs> and they were traditional and we would, and you know, it was all stuff to like and be interested in. And then I got to school and it was like, well, no, you can't like the traditional stuff. You have to only like the modern stuff. And that was a little bit shocking. So mind blowing to me. Yeah, that was kind of surprising. And but but I thought, well, if okay, if I'm in these studios with all these great practitioners, there's no point in my trying to you know say I'm going to do a classical library if I'm in a super modern studio critics studio. I should really try to learn what they know. And the, so that was really my approach was to try and understand the language that they were interested in and they were their point of view. And, and you, I think you learn more that way. You learn more about what their point of view is mm -hmm. and, and probably made me more of, of a pluralist than a lot of my classicist colleagues. I'm very open to a lot of different kinds of architecture. Yeah. And you can see it in your portfolio. I mean, there, there are some projects that are very classical and then there are some that are, you know, more of a blend or more modern. That's kind of extremely hard to do. <laughs> well, it's it's fun to do. I mean, it's scary sometimes because I think I think what what we know as a as a firm, we know best how to do the traditional Absolutely. stuff, but it's nice to be provoked by your clients to to step out of that comfort zone. And I now feel like those are the best projects that kind of make you uncomfortable a little bit, you know, yeah. a little scared, a little bit like, "Ooh, I don't know if I know how to do that." Mhm. Mm it pushes you a little bit more. Exactly. Yeah. I feel like I've seen on Instagram some behind the scenes of some stuff that you and David Netto are doing that looks really oh, yeah. interesting yeah. and cool and kind of out of the box for you guys. So I'm excited to see that. And yeah, David's fun to work with because he really, he pushes me a lot. So after you studied modernism and you ended up out of school, was Ferguson the first job out of architecture school? No, no. My, actually, my studio critic at Yale, Bernard Schumi, asked me and one other guy from our studio to come work for him in New York oh, wow. right out of school. And this was the late 80s, so there it was actually not a great time for jobs. You know, there weren't like a ton of jobs. Yeah. Super exciting to have work for this high-profile guy at a very low salary. Yeah. <laughs> and so I went and, and with, with my friend from the studio, and we went to work 
for Bernard. And it was super fascinating and mentally challenging in the best way. But a lot of it was very conceptual. Mm-hmm. We were working on a, a competition for a hotel for Euro Disney, and then we were working on a proposal for a mile-long airport terminal in Osaka, Japan. Oh, wow. It was, you know, very intellectually interesting and inspiring, and Bernard had has amazing ideas. But I began to recognize there was a disconnect between that intellectual stuff and, like, the things in my soul that I connected to. This kind of work that I was doing at Shumi's office was so alienated from that. It was so different from it. Yeah, it didn't, like and, a different world. And I just thought, you know what, this is not the trajectory I want to be on for long term. And so I completely switched gears and went to work for a small firm that did mostly houses. Ultimately, I ended up at Ferguson Shamamian, which for almost a decade, which was an amazing, I always say it's like my second graduate degree yeah. because I really, I really learned about classicism there, both from the partners, but also from my colleagues who were most of them really skilled classicists in that office. So it was an incredible place to work and learn. And Mark Ferguson was principally the, the person I worked under and he was an amazing mentor and teacher and taught me about professionalism in, in architecture and how to run a project well and to service the client well and to be you know thoughtful and consistent with your ideas and, you know, all good stuff. So it was, it was great background. It reminds me of Parish Hadley Tree of Life. How many people have come out of these firms and- Including Mark Ferguson. <laughs> right, exactly. But it's, it's amazing to me that the sense of history and sort of place that these firms create for the next generation of designers and architects that come out of them. Yeah, it, made, it helped me to understand how important mentoring and teaching is within the context of an office. And it's something that really guided the way I thought about my own office. And once I was able to start my own practice, mm-hmm. I have new partners, Amy and Kevin Busolato, who actually were two of my first employees. Wow, that's amazing. And congratulations, by the way, on, the, I mean, that's relatively recent and very exciting. It is, and, and thrilling. And they actually, they left my firm to go teach at the University of Notre Dame, which, which has one of the only classical programs in America in architecture school. And so they really are educators by, not just by inclination, but also by profession. Right. And it's wonderful to have them back here because that was very much the way I thought about what we do here you know, not just in terms of the way we create projects, but also can we create an experience for people who work here where they're learning all the time and growing professionally themselves. I feel like you also are taking that concept of education and legacy and with the trilogy of the books and the show on PBS, which is wonderful. I've I've been watching it. You are sort of teaching the public too about what it means to have an understanding of classical architecture and what goes into a home. I felt like, well, what I can do at least with the books is just share what I, my point of view and what I've learned and how I think about it. And, and hopefully it can be useful to somebody in their own journey to make a house or whether they're designing a house themselves or they're working with an architect or whatever. Can that be helpful, you know, to share what I've been through and what I've feel like I've 
come to understand. And the cool thing is that it, it keeps changing and you keep learning. And I think that, you know, that was sort of my, <laughs> the point of this last book is kind of like, every time I sat down to write a book, I realized how much I had learned, but also how much I'd, I'd changed and grown. And, right. and that, of course, that's the great thing about the adventure of life, isn't it? That we, <laughs> hopefully, ideally, we keep growing and, and learning and, and we're not static individuals. Totally. We had Peter Penoyer on last season and he said the same thing that, you know, you always have to keep your eyes open and be open to, to change and open to learning new things because learning is kind of the, the bedrock of, of continuing. Yeah, exactly. Can you speak to when you take on new projects now, what is it about them at this point where you choose to take them on? Yeah, that's a good question. And some, I think it's different now. And I think I like to be a little bit scared yeah. <laughs> about the fact that I don't quite know how to solve the problem, you know, as it's being described to me. And, and that's really good. So mm -hmm. I, I think the bottom line is, have we done it before? You know, if we haven't, and it's compelling, that's something we want to do. Either it's a style of house, or it's a place that we haven't worked in before or a style of house we haven't worked on before or it's a kind of program that we haven't quite tackled yet those are things that make it really interesting and right. and so i think that's that's kind of where we where we look when projects come in you know as possibilities and and also most most importantly i, I think is are we a good fit for the client and what they want to do mm -hmm. too and i think you feel that i'm sure you feel that when you sit down with, you know, somebody who's going to be a potential client. Can I, can I help them realize their dreams? Am I the right person? Am I the, do I have the point of view that it's going to mesh with their point of view? Yeah. I think that's one of the most important things too, for, for the process, keeping it seamless and, and working and building that level of trust with the client too. Right. And that's just something I think that comes with time, being able to feel if that's going to be there when you have that first intake meeting or figuring it out. <laughs> I think we that never ends. I don't think. I mean, you you always reassuring. <laughs> but I think you get as you do it more. You your intuition is sharpened. Yes, and also you're more courageous about saying no, even when you might think that oh, I should probably take that project, but because of the business or whatever. But but you know it's not going to be a good fit, yes. and so you're courageous enough after a while to say, you know what, it's. I, I, I know that's not going to go well, so let's let's say no. Yeah, that has happened too, and it's <laughs> I think a blessing to be able to have to cultivate that intuition, and it just I think it comes with time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and experience. Yeah. Well, you've talked about in your books that your highest achievement you feel as an architect is when you successfully create a place that clients can call home. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that means to you? Yeah, uh, I think so. I, um, <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's it's sort of an intangible in a way, isn't it? That's the yeah. only reason I, I hesitate. Can I can I do it? At, say it adequately. I think home is such a personal thing. Everybody has their own definition of what home means to them, and it and I think it's tied up with memory. Mm -hmm. And so your your goal is to try to help create this place that allows them to tap into those memories and also to make memories, right? With yeah. their own families to create. I mean, we do a lot of we work with a lot of families now, you know, and, and it's extend, almost extended families. And people say to me more and more, you know, I want to build my forever home. Mm -hmm. And that's really about their family and, and, and their life with their family. And, and I think that also that resonates so much 
I think particularly now in our time, because I think because of COVID, you know, and, and yeah. how we all had those experiences, not all, but a lot of us were, we went home or we gathered, we gathered family around us and we kind of hunkered oh, down. down. Yeah. And it, it became this thing. And I think I, it was certainly in my own family, I was newly married and we had to kind of retreat to the countryside and be together in a very like close way that we hadn't quite had the opportunity yet to be as a new family together. And it was very formative. It was very important. Yeah. So it's finding ways to create these spaces that people feel comfortable in. They feel like they can live their life in and, and create memories with their children or their parents or whatever, and that it will last, that it's sort of like a lasting place and that maybe the grandchildren will come back and have an experience there that will connect with their parents' time in the house. And Yeah, that's beautiful. Something we talk about too a lot because the majority of our clients are, are you know, young families and we often kind of get the same request of we want to build our life here. Uh-huh. And it always strikes me, the most moving thing of what we do is that we're creating the backdrop for these children's memories. Yes, exactly. You know, when, when you have your memories of being, you know, 10 and lost in your head in a, in a daydream in your room, like that background of the room is something that as an architect, you're dreaming up or as a designer, you're dreaming up. I think that's the most special thing about, about what you get to do and what we get to do. I think it's why I love doing houses more than any other building type because there's there's this just as you're describing it, it's the same there's this very direct connection to the user's experiences you know that that's more specific than say if you're doing yeah. a library where there may be a lot of people coming in and out of your building but you're not connecting directly necessarily with those people in the same way no, there's like a character element to it. Like you're, the clients yeah. become the character of the story and then you're kind of building on it from there. Yeah. Do you think that's your favorite element about the design process for you? I mean, that's the most satisfying part about it. I mean, sure, it's, you know, if you can dream up a space in your mind and then you build it and then you walk into it and it's like, wow, this is yeah. cool or this was fun or I, this is the way I imagined it. But that is great. But without the people in it, using it, giving it life, it, it it doesn't go very far, you know, so yeah. it, it needs that sense of the family moving in. And one of the things I love is this after families move in, they'll send me pictures. I have this one family that keeps sending me videos from, you know, like oh. this weekend we did this and look at the kids are jumping up and down on the sofa. That's and the I'm best. thinking, Oh my God, the sofa. But at the same time, <laughs> you're, you know, you're, you're loving that they're just loving their house and living in it. It's so special. We recently completed a project in New Canaan and we got pictures of the dining room on Thanksgiving. Oh. It was the first Thanksgiving and yeah. they have two young kids that are like my kids age, two and four. And it just, it's so special to see that because yeah. that's what it's all about. It is. It really is. That's why I think, I mean, I think for those of us that do the residential thing, I think that, that those are the moments that are really special. When you are designing spaces, what do you think is the most important thing that you kind of always have in the back of your mind when when you're sketching like is there any rules that you follow or do you think those are made to be broken well i mean i think there are i mean yes rules are made to be broken but i think <laughs> certain things that i'm always looking for light natural light yeah. how am i getting that in to the spaces and the flow i think when you look at traditional houses as your model 
the spaces are fairly discreet from each other. You know, there were doors that closed and they, they were meant to be separated, right? Yeah. Because sometimes in a big fancy house, there were, maybe there was staff and you were, they were supposed to be invisible in a way. And so we're interested in those spaces formally in terms of what they can teach us in, in terms of design, but we have to change the way they function in terms of, you know, interacting the kitchen with the living room and all and opening that up and creating really good flow from one end of the house to the other. So it doesn't become so separated right. um, because that's not the way people want to live now. Everyone wants, you want to live in every room. Especially when you have young kids. I mean, it's impossible. Totally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also, I think if you if you find with young kids that your life is around the kitchen and the family room there, if you don't open it up into the living room and the more so-called formal side of the house, you'll never go there, right? No. So you want to you want to pull people back and forth, the residents of your of your houses back and forth between between those spaces, so that you really use everything in a house. I love that. That's really good advice. Well, pivoting a little bit to the books, you I mean, you've written two. Honestly, they're iconic books at this point. I mean, I don't know a single designer that doesn't have them and, and doesn't give them pride of place in their library. And your third, Home at Last, Enduring Design for the New American House, completes the trilogy, which I'm, I can't wait to read. Can you tell us a little bit about your newest book? It focuses primarily on eight different houses. Each one, I think, is fairly distinct from the other. <laughs> and it's really about you know, eight different families and how they like to live. And, and you know, as I sat down to, to write it, I thought about, well, what's been going on in my own life and my own family? And then obviously big change since I wrote the last book. Yeah, and COVID and everything. COVID and getting married and having teenagers and having a real appreciation for the messiness of life. Yeah. And you as a mom, you know that all too well oh, with yeah. a two-year-old and a four-year-old. But, you know, I... I was a guy who who lived. Yes, I knew about it, but <laughs> but I also re retired to uh, you know this sort of perfect, a clean, a clean and quiet home at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, picture picture perfect, like you know nothing messed it up, blah, 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 except for what I did. Right. And of course, we all know that real life is in a family isn't that way. Yeah. So that was been a great lesson and evolution you know, to, to experience it firsthand as opposed to just academically kind of. Yeah. And I hope it, you know, I hope it sort of deepened my understanding of, of families and the way to design for them and, and to allow for the messiness of life and, and to allow for people to have different kinds of moods about the way they want to live. Sometimes they want to be formal. Sometimes they want to be really casual. Sometimes they want to be traditional, but sometimes they want to be a little modern and all that can live in harmony with each other if you if you can figure out you know how to design that in a way that feels harmonious but right. allows for all of that these different kinds of houses and and hopefully there's you know memory in all of them and clients are bringing their own memories and experiences to the table when we sit down to design for them and i don't know we've had a lot of fun and i've learned a lot and you know i hope to keep that's part of the journey is of being an architect i yeah. guess is and a human is always learning, as we as we said at the beginning. It's but. also it's such a beautiful ode to to Courtney and your children. So that's really special too. I think. I mean, it's just a different experience with this book. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the experience of writing a book in general? Are there any? Are you working on one yourself? I am. I just signed a contract with Rizzoli, which I'm I'm really excited about and also terrified. Congratulations! <laughs> that's so great. Thank you. I, you know, I, I actually, I mean, it's hard work, no question, 
but I actually love it. I've loved it because it forces you to kind of sit down and really think about what you do and why you do it, mm -hmm. you know, and then, and then to write it down, you know, and to the act of doing that is really important, I think, because it helps you to be more, maybe more tuned into your process yeah. and what's important. So I've loved that, that whole thing of having to sit down and write a book and, and trying to figure out, you know, what's different each time and what you've, you know, what you're trying to say and, and, and what you've learned. So I applaud you for taking the journey yourself. Thank you. I'm really excited. And I, I freelance right on the side. So I'm right. I'm going to write it, which I'm just absolutely terrified about, but I'm excited <laughs> too. I mean, I'm really yeah. excited. And like you said, I think it's, I think it's a really personal taking stock of, you know, where you are in your career, how you got there and, and what you kind of distill to be the most important tenants of what you do. And it helps people to know you in a new way too, I think, you know, and, and to, you know, both clients and just, you know, just to give people a sense of who you are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel that way about your books. I mean, we haven't met in person, but I've read your books so many times. I, I go back to them time and time again. I, I really, I'm not kidding. It's a, it's a WWGD. What, what would Gil do when I have a <laughs> and I read the book? So a little bit of personal questions now. Okay. What do you think your home says about you? Well, I think it says different things. Uh, you know, I we're blessed with the opportunity to have a couple different places, so mm -hmm. they say different things in different places. So in New York City, it's really Courtney's vision. It was her apartment that I moved into when we married. So, and she's a designer, so she, you know, is really her. And she would say that I, you know, got in there and had things to say, but. <laughs> She's a wonderfully talented designer. I follow her on Instagram. She had the ultimate, you know, veto. And so she'd lived in California for 19 years, I think. So, and, but she had in her younger years been in New York. And she, when she came back, she said, I want to do this kind of classic Upper East Side kind of apartment. You know, I want it to be kind of old fashioned and classic. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's one thing. And then the house in the Hudson Valley is that I built is very traditional. It's very filled, filled with, old things that I grew up with or that came from my grandparents. And so it, and it has a lot of color. I think I like a lot more color than Courtney does, <laughs> but like more of a muted palette. And, and we, we, we constantly tease each other about that, you know, because we're, I'm, I'm a little bit more colorful than in my color choices than yeah. she would be. I think she likes a little more serene environment. Split on that at home. Like some people love it to be really serene because they're looking at it all day. And then other people uh -huh. kind of need that at home, like the color and the pattern. Yeah. And then Maine is this weird anomaly in the sense that I bought this house that just was so terrible inside <laughs> and, and, I, and, you know, painted it all white and said, you know, I've, I've got to it was built in 1990 or something and it sort of was like an a-frame almost and i i said okay it's just got to be a little more modern that's in one of your books that's in the second book yeah so it's completely different you know yeah. it, it, than everything else and and that's fun too i think as designers you know this we we like so many different things and so it's kind of fun to be able to express those different moods or ideas differently yes. in different yes. settings yeah, it's a, a blessing. I mean, to be able to to do it. I oh my God, such a blessing! I mean, I feel <laughs> so lucky to have had that opportunity. I feel like we all, as designers, have different elements of our personality or design sort of personality that we want to evoke, and they don't all really go together. And so, to be able to edit them 
into different locations and tap into that sense of place where they are is is so fun. Yeah. Is there anywhere that you like to go to find inspiration or favorite places you like to shop for home? Well, probably if I had to pick one place, it'd probably be England. Yeah. I love, I mean, I'm such an Anglophile, I guess. <laughs> I love the English countryside. I love the inspiration of the landscape. I love the inspiration of the architecture. And then it's a great place to shop, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, antiques also are so much less expensive in the UK than they are here. No, it's kind of wild. And, and they're also quirkier and more interesting. Yeah, it makes sense. It's an older country. <laughs> exactly. And maybe the stuff that gets brought over here is more slightly, generic is the wrong word, but, you know, slightly more expected yeah. so that it can Powerful. Sell, you know, Yeah. Where you go over there, you can find this weird table that, you know, is just makes no sense, but <laughs> it's, so, it's so uniquely wonderful. What do you think have been the three biggest influences on your aesthetic in your life? Well, obviously people I've worked with. So, you know, the people I've been lucky to work under or collaborate with is one influence. I think travel is another one, you know, just being able to go places and see things and be inspired by them. And then books, you know, just, I, I mean, I know that's old fashioned to like, no, it's but, true, but, you know, just to sit with books or even old, I mean, I have I think every world of interior since 1982 or four. Wow. That's amazing. And I'll just sit and go through them, you know, and years later you'll, you'll notice something that you didn't notice the last time you looked at it yep. because you, you learned something new in the intervening years and it made you pay attention to that particular house or that garden or whatever that you didn't notice before. And so it's so important in what we do to, to look, to be always be looking, I think. Yeah. We've done 15 interviews so far, and every single interview, everyone says the importance of travel and the importance of reading, mm -hmm. uh, you know, these vintage design books and just kind of keeping your eyes open and always being open to learning more. And because you can never be done right. with knowing more. I mean, it's just such a vast history and there's so many different ways that people live in different places. And so I think that's been the biggest takeaway from for me doing these interviews is, you know, some of the best in the business, I'll say the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any particular like icons in, in the world of architecture or style in general? For me, probably, I mean, there's lots of, lots of places to find iconic inspiration, but I think because of, because I do houses, I pay a lot of attention to the house architects. So yeah. Uh, from the past. And I always mentioned David Adler. I think he was one of the most interesting. He, he was obviously very, he was very, very knowledgeable about the his, architectural history of whatever he was looking at, but then he was able to somehow transform it a, in a way that wasn't, you know, uh, very much, in, not in your face, mm -hmm. subtle things. And, or he was able to mix styles, you know, where you'd find a Georgian room in a Tudor house or, a, you know, different kinds of things that he mixed. And then when he worked with his sister, Frances Elkins, as, as a decorator, they did really interesting things together because she was, she was more out of the box than he was. And she would bring in, you know, like Jean-Michel Franck right. into the houses in ways that was really interesting and, and unexpected and made something new that you hadn't seen before. So, I mean, he's certainly one of them, uh, David Hicks as a designer, I think, is a great inspiration. He appeals to my sense of tailoredness. <laughs> so funny hearing you say both names because I feel like you see 
the theory behind both in your work. I mean, there's that tailored crisp element, and then you also blend eras mm. really beautifully and in subtle ways. So I feel like that that makes a lot of sense. So those are two, I guess. <laughs> Well, for the last few minutes, we have some rapid fire questions and they are not necessarily design related, but I feel like it gives people a little bit more of a personal side of everybody that we interview. So we have 10 questions. Okay. What is your favorite food? Probably my wife's roast chicken on Sunday night. That's really great. Favorite drink? Diet Coke. You know, you and Mika Tenhoff have... <laughs> ah, <laughs> I've got, I'm drinking one right now. Love Diet <laughs> Coke. That's so funny. Favorite film? Oh, gosh. Classic. Some Something classic like Holiday or Philadelphia Story, you know? Oh, those are both so good. Favorite hotel? Oh, Ballyfin, Ireland. Oh, I've always wanted to go there. You should. I've never been to Ireland and it's on my list. When I'm- Take you and your husband and just, you know, get a like a long weekend getaway. <laughs> I know. It's so hard to travel with toddlers. And like, I have this huge list of like all these places that we want to go when they're a little bit older. Yeah. Yeah. Favorite city? I mean, I love New York, but London probably. <laughs> I would have to agree with you. Favorite, like what? what is your particular bedding? I feel like people are very much either in like the the white and crisp camp or like the very patterned oh. porto. Oh, I'm the white and crisp camp. Yeah, yeah with hem, with hem stitch. <laughs> I feel like that tracks. Tea or coffee, and how do you take it? Tea. I uh, don't drink coffee. Tea, just with lemon. Favorite playlist. Oh, geez. <laughs> I listen to jazz, but then I'm around teenagers, so there's there's a lot of rap and there's. <laughs> Suicide Boys, and there's, you know, who knows? That's amazing. The girls in my office are always playing Post Malone, and I don't, I'm 32, but for some reason, I don't really know what's going on these days because I just have like Disney on repeat all the time in my car. So they're always making fun of me because I have no clue what they're playing. I know. I I get it. It's really embarrassing. Favorite weekend activity? Going with my wife and antiquing somewhere, you know? Yeah. Like we both love that, you know, to go look for old furniture together. So yeah, it's so nice that you both are kind of you cross. I know it's awesome. It's It's like we have the same, uh, we're sort of aligned on our on our interests. Yeah, that's really special. I've I've slowly but surely, you know, gotten my husband over to the dark side of caring a little bit about antiques. (laughs) This is a hard question. And you might not be able to answer it favorite design book. Oh, gosh, I don't know. That's a that's a I might have to pass on that one because I don't know how to, I mean, aside from, you know, a monograph on one of the great architects, whether it's, you know, David Adler or Lutchens or, you know, people that I would look at, you know, for insp- for specific right. inspiration, inspiration. That, that feels too limited. Right. I don't know. I feel like I, I, I don't have a good, like all around perfect design book to suggest. No, it's a really hard one. Is there anything that you are referencing right now, a specific book for any projects? God, if you saw our office, it's like piles of books for every <laughs> different kind of project. So we're looking all over the place. We're looking at Henri Samuel and Jean for some house we're working on in Texas to oh, wow. looking at very modern interiors for another house that the client has a very contemporary collection of art inside. You know, it's going to be more traditional outside and very modern inside. So. You, you name it, we're looking everywhere. <laughs> I love that. That question is a pulse check on all the different things you guys are doing right now. 
Well, that leads me to our final few words, which usually the one of the last questions I ask is, what are you working on right now? Any new projects you can talk about? But we just kind of discussed that. Are there, is there anything else that you're, that you're working on? We're working on a house, another house with Rita Koenig in Maine. Amazing. And it was um, Winslow Homer's father's house. Wow, that's so cool. That was you know, kind of altered over the course of the 20th century and not the best way, especially the latter part. (laughs) That happens. (laughs) Yeah, it does. It does. And so we took it back really to the way it was when much, much closer to to the way it was when Charles Homer built it. And it sits on a point of land in Prout's Neck, Maine, looking right next to Winslow Homer's studio. And it looks out at the water and that's really fun and always fun to collaborate with Rita. We're working with Victoria Hagen on a project, two projects, one in a Manhattan apartment overlooking the park and then a, a house in uh, Hope Sound, Florida. And that's super fun to collaborate with her. We're looking, we're working on a very Lutchens inspired English style house in Connecticut in the countryside. You guys are busy, busy. I love when I get your catalog. Ah, it's a mailer. It's so exciting. And I just love seeing the behind the scenes photos. And yeah, I like that's uh, sort of my favorite part too. Like everybody, you know, doing their thing for on the job site. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And I, I feel like you get a real sense for like, you know, how it really is behind the scenes and, how, and all the work that goes into it. All right. Well, my final question for you, do you have advice for someone looking to define their own interior style? I mean, I guess, uh, you know, tap into who you are and be authentic about that. That seems to be the best way to be successful as a designer is if you can somehow tap into your own who you are and what you can bring to the table, because that'll feel the most authentic and unique. Well, Gil, thank you so much for joining us. I can't even tell you how excited I was to have you on. And you're just a delight to to talk to and to, to hear from you. Where can listeners find more about you and your firm? On our website, which is SchaeferBusilato.com. And then hopefully at a bookstore near you. Yeah, (laughs) I can't wait. I'm so excited for the third book. I know it will be beautiful without having even seen it. So, (laughs) well, and I hope we get to see each other in person sometime. Yes, I would love that. I am so happy that we were able to do this today. And I I would love to to meet in the city sometime soon. (laughs) Well, thank you. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Talk Shop. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with more thoughtful discussions and amazing guests. Make sure you follow on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify so you never miss an episode. And of course, follow me at Ariel Oaken. See you next week.